Hi, this is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Babulakis. This is our second episode now, and this time we're going to be talking about sort of a unique, uniquely Toronto experience in the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. Now, for those of you that don't know, it is a professional level two-day conference where some of the world's best writers, showrunners, creators themselves come and talk about their work. This is a conference now that has been going on for six years. I volunteered every year and it's always fascinating to hear so many different people talk. Now, because I volunteer and help out one, I don't get to experience everything. And two, I like to kind of take a step back. I'm there to assist the festival, uh, be there for the speakers, things like that. Uh, a, a real support role where it's a lot of fun for me to do that sort of thing. But luckily, we had you, Andres, there to come in with a media pass sit in on the session, be a bit of a fly on the wall, and truly experience it. You came last year as well, and you reviewed it for Live in Limbo, but this is your second year back. First opening thoughts? Well, it was an absolute pleasure to go last year, and that's actually how we came to know one another in person was because you formally invited me as a media representative of the site. So I've got to thank you again for that past experience because as the film editor now for Live in Limbo, it was something I was very eager to come back to and revisit. And it was absolutely worth it. I mean, this is more than just a celebration. This is absolutely essential material for anybody interested in screenwriting or who's ever even been interested in screenwriting. Even so, if you're not a writer per se, it opens up so much to you. Like, let's say there's something you're not a big fan of. You could at least appreciate and understand something where the writers were coming from and get their thought proceeds, right? And you can apply a lot of what you've learned through these different talks to many things that you either like or you don't. So the things you love, you understand better on a contextual level. And the things you don't, you can understand, okay, this is what they were trying to attempt with this. So no, it is highly informative as always. Now, Glenn Coburn, he is the head of Meridian Artists who puts on this conference. Uh, Meridian Artist is a screenwriter's agency, so he's an agent. He has stated several times that his goal for this festival is that he went around and saw that there was a couple other screenwriting conferences, but it was all very basic 101, and this is what a three-act structure is, and this is how you write a character. And he kind of really despised that because there was no true true professional conference and that was his whole goal do you feel that that's what sufficiently was accomplished this year and last year especially yes um i mean the fan appeal is what drives people to get there in the first place so last year you had you know the writer of little miss sunshine and toy story 3 which was something that i was very pulled by as well as one of the co-writers for Blade Runner which is one of my all-time favorite films as yours as well and you go there with this with these wide eyes saying oh my goodness here we go we're going to learn about something that these writers have but in the end whether it's people you're there for or, or people that you just end up sitting up through their lectures with because while well, they're there um you get so many different ideas but none of them clash with one another it's not something where you can say well this person's right and this person isn't because so many writers have different goals and different angles they want to tackle you have so many bits of information to take in at once and everyone's fully accepting everyone's very understandable very casual and the interesting thing is that there's an event after um all of the speeches where you can mingle with other co-writers with other screenwriters and even talk to these presenters. Like last year I had a drink with the guy who co-wrote Blade Runner, go figure. Right. Very cool. He, right. 
Yeah, and he helped write Unforgiven, which is one of the best Westerns ever made as well. I just remember that. So, no, it's it's crazy. And it's all of it is just spending time learning how to be a better writer or just understand film better, which if you're a cinephile, you can't ask for anything more. So this is absolutely that goal being achieved because you're not just there you know, eyeballing these people you're, you idolize, but you are obtaining so much information. It is an absolute goldmine. Now that, now that you said that, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, it, it really is, you're expected to know a certain level of information going in, not, not about the presenters themselves, but about your work a lot of these people are kind of there to help the attendees get over that last hump. You know, they're working on their screenplay or it's even finished and they know long, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to understand the feedback or market it. Right. Um, which I think is sort of the real gold mine where I could tell in, in each session, there's at least one person in the room that went that had a light bulb go off and be like, you know what, that's the moment I've been stuck on. And now I finally know how to cross that bridge. You know, I can have a million people read and give me feedback from my friends and family and other writers I know, but having someone this successful in the industry be like, hey, for all of you that are stuck at this point, here's what you need to do. Right, absolutely. And again, it with Going to these um, to these seminars of people you idolize, you not only learn what their thought process was, but you get so much context that you, all, it's, as you said, you basically know where to continue. It's an absolute savior of writer's block because it's not just these lessons on here's how you write a story. As you said, you have you go in there because you already have the bare basics. You know, if this was a language learning app, for instance, you're not learning the color blue. You're not learning how to say apple. At this point, you know how to string a sentence, but you can't be fluent. The Toronto Screenwriting Conference would help you be fluent, where you learn how to piece everything together and say, ha. This is how I fix this, or this is how I communicate fully. You know, it's not just the bare bones basics. This is the solvent glue that puts everything together. And um, just with some of the people I saw this year, you know, those that I idolize and those that I was just familiar with, I got a very good insight into just how these things work. And we'll go into them in in just a bit, but it was fascinating because. Um, one of the speakers, again, we'll go into in a bit, um, I'm a big fan of some of his work and just finding out some of the inspirations that this man had throughout his entire life and how he wasn't afraid to inject it into his work. Just seeing that had me in awe saying, I lived a very similar experience when I was younger with all of these stories that were affecting me. And this guy wasn't afraid to put his name on the line many a time just because he felt this was the right thing to do. And that was the theme that I felt was happening a lot this year, just people putting themselves on the line because it's what they truly felt was something that they should be following. And they might have had trouble at first, but they're fully su- they're fully successful now. And if that's not inspirational, I don't know what is. Now, speaking of people that are semi-idolizing and drawing in the name acts. I think the main big name person there was David S. Goyer, who if you're not a big movie person, even if you are, a lot of people don't realize, don't know the writer's names. For people that don't know, David S. Goyer is a legend. He is a man who he got his big break by writing Blade. He worked on the Dark Knight trilogy. And now somehow he managed to help reboot the Superman franchise. And he's currently co-writing Batman versus Superman. Like, I don't know how you can't ask for more of a rock star name of someone who is super relevant at the top of their game right now. Yes, and this was exactly the man I was talking about. The Dark Knight itself, never mind the entire series, but just the standalone 2008 epic, let's call it that. (laughs) Exactly. The Dark Knight is a superhero movie that is above and beyond that. It topped more critics lists at the end of the year than any other film, even more than Wally or just 
almost just under Wally, maybe, which is Pixar. But to see a superhero film that speaks so profoundly and shatters the world like that, and most of that came from not just Nolan's insp- from Nolan's vision and the acting and the music, but from this mythic undertone that David S. Goyer helped inject into the franchise. He did help write the screenplay for Batman Begins, and he only co-wrote Dark- The Dark Knight, but this concept of making Bruce Wayne more than just this rich playboy set the whole series up and his his help with the entire series has made the Dark Knight series an almost insurmountable peak for superhero films as they now are fighting to try and have a commentary on what the world's like today as you can see with Joss Whedon's advent with Joss Whedon's Avengers with the latest Daredevil TV show being apparently dark and gritty and even it's the gold standard you're now yeah. no matter what superhero film is made it's now going to be compared to the dark knight series it's impossible you, yeah. that's that that's the bar there there is no nothing else it's well are, are you at least on par with the dark knight exactly and the interesting thing is i actually was very fortunate enough to have a sit-down interview with david s goyer which you will hear in a very little bit and he does say that he does say we are stuck behind the Dark Knight's shadow right now. And that'll end. It'll end eventually. But for now, that is the part of the sundial we are being shrouded under. And until we see the light and that time has passed, then we will find something new. But for now, we are heavily cloaked by the Dark Knight. Now, it's pretty interesting. His his speech himself, speech itself was about creating myths and using myths in stories because it's not very difficult to look at Batman movies and Blade and see where the mythic origins come from as far as their comic books. But then you realize that there is additional mythology behind these superheroes' own mythology. Did you feel that he was able to to successfully explain not only the inspiration, but how to weave mythology into stories that are already being told? A hundred percent. The interesting thing is... Almost every story, no matter if it's, you know, Batman or Bridesmaids, follows a hero's journey. If it follows the conventional plot basis that almost every story falls underneath. Unless you're a John Luke Godard, of course. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those funny things where once you realize, for people that don't know, the, the hero's journey is basically uh, a guy named Joseph Campbell wrote about how there's only a certain amount of stories told. Everything else is just a reimagining of those few stories. And once you know that as a either a film student or a writer or whatever you you can't unsee that but it's interesting to kind of step back and you forget about it and I go oh yeah that's right it, you know star wars is the same as every other movie before the dark knight is the same as every other movie and story and book that's ever been told before but you you forget when you're in the moment because these writers do a good job making them human yeah, I think of it as like blues music where it has the same chord progression, but if you add the emotions to it, it's a completely different song or it's a completely different story in this case. But David S. Goyer sees this as an advantage where he says, hang on a second. If we have this plot basis that works, why can't we go back in time, see what happens there? Like these stories that led civilizations, you know, so these are ideas that are deeply rooted in society. You know, so many people try to have these morals or these metaphors injected into their movies, but here you're basically having a foolproof plan where, Hey, these are concepts that everybody gets because this is their history. Why don't I just include it with a hero suffering the same journey that, you know, um, characters of the Odyssey might've faced, you know, or as he put it, like, in Buddhist faith, he had a lot of ideologies put there. So it's a lot of concepts about life and mortality that Buddhists had, you know, and in return, it speaks more about today's society because these are embedded faiths that people have had, whether these are religions that have died or have succeeded, you know, it's, it's just one of those funny things where sometimes someone will walk out a movie and they'll be like, Oh yeah, I really relate it to them, that character, that story, but they can't put their finger on, why they relate to it yeah well it's because people like david s goyer and 
more of the presenters as we go on want to put them not just themselves into these screenplays, but they want to put history, you know. A lot of the time, this is what I learned about this year's screenwriting conference. A lot of the time, we're busy trying to be innovative, where we're trying to be creative and go outside of the box. But sometimes we need to see what worked as well, because you can actually make it work even better and try and actually recreate or rejuvenate it in such a way that it speaks differently. You know, if you bring this whole concept of the man who has to fight his way out of a bottomless pit and work his way back up, which has been done in history and mythology before, but you have a new context and way of saying it now where you've got this, again, this rich playboy who um, has a hidden identity, uh, is being wanted for just trying to help the city and the world, you know, with this new spin on it, it means something radically different to this person. It's no longer just a man fighting his way out. This is a man who's being unappreciated and a man who's just trying to make his life worthwhile instead of just being rich. You know, like there's just so much more context to it, even though it's following a story that's essentially been kind of said before, actually, too, because Batman obviously isn't some new story either, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of people who are definitely not underappreciated, let's take a listen to your excellent interview with David S. Goyer. Hello, I'm Andreas Babiolakis with the, with the ContraZoom podcast on LiveInLimbo.com, and I'm here with acclaimed writer David Goyer. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm, it's an absolute pleasure, and thank you for your absolutely inspirational speech this morning. I, I I hope it was helpful. I, I I gave a lot of thought as to what could be informative to you know writers, and I thought back when I was in film school. So I tried to give a lot of concrete examples from some of the things that I'd worked on. As somebody who's grown up in a Greek family and actually grown up with a lot of Egyptian mythological influence, I can see a lot of the inspiration that you've had within your own stories. So a lot of what you talked about actually hit close to home for me when I was growing up writing these little crazy picture books as you did yourself. Mm. Um, I also see between mythological stories, uh, there's also a link to folk culture where sure. if you pass along your stories, you pick up different tales and say them in a different way. So in different cultures, it could have a different representation. With that being said, a lot of folk in contemporary culture is also political and so has social commentary. Do you mm -hmm. think that your films might intentionally or unintentionally carry social or political tones of whatever's happening when you write? I'm positive they all have unintentional social commentary. I think that's unavoidable. And sometimes they have conscious social commentary. I mean, I will say that the, to a certain extent, when we were working on the Dark Knight trilogy, Chris and I were mindful of the fact that, that Bruce's kind of um, battle and evolution in Gotham, fighting crime in Gotham, we, we were aware of the sort of analogs to what America was doing in Iraq uh, and then later on in, in Afghanistan. And um, while it wasn't meant to be, you know, just a complete critique of, of that war per se, we, 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 we gave a lot of thought to that. Um, I, I know that moving forward in Da Vinci's Demons, we have an upcoming third season and um, to a certain extent we're dealing with uh, the Ottomans invading Otranto, which is a historic event that happened. I think it was 1482. I might have gotten that wrong by a year or so. And, and it was impossible to work on that and not think about the unrest that's happening, you know, in the Middle East right now in terms of uh, extremism and jihadism and things like that. With that in mind... Um you also say that when you were writing about mythological stories, you saw a lot of similarities, which, again, could be linked to the social commentary found in your own pieces unintentionally again. Um, with that in mind, you said you saw a lot of links between Christianity or Christianity ra rather and older religions or o older mythological tales. Do you find that by basing a lot of your stories on old mythological stories that you're almost debunking mythology? I mean... I don't know that it's debunking. I think that I think that every generation thinks that their their myth was the first myth, and I think if you look back, 
you know, it, it, it just seems like there are antecedents to everything. There are probably, um, I'm not making a comment on Christianity. It's just, it's just, it's evident to me when you study the sons of Mithras, which were this pre-Christian mystery cult, that there are a lot of elements of that myth that seem very similar to the Christ myth. Um, and the fact that a lot of churches were built upon old Mithraeums, which were these sort of places of worship that existed before Christianity, that's really interesting too. Supposedly there was a Mithraeum beneath the Vatican. There were a lot of these places dotting the landscape in Europe. Um, a lot of the and it's the nature of myth and it's the nature of society to kind of build upon the bones of what came before it. And so right. we do we do know that when the church was spreading, in some cases, they they became syncretic. They adopted sort of the practices of other religions. Um, a lot of, you know, we, we just said Easter, you know, which comes from a lot of pagan rituals. They existed long, right. you know. Christmas as well. Exactly. Christmas as well. There's a really... That was sort of Christianity adopting a pre-existing pagan ritual. So it's not about debunking myths. It's just about acknowledging that in most cases, this stuff exists on this long continuum and probably extends back hundreds of thousands of years to when we were all kind of painting pictures of bulls and caves. With this vast knowledge of all of these stories created through all these civilizations, you obviously have a very vast palette of where to pick from. Obviously, you've brought forth a lot of examples you used for the characters you rejuvenated with these different franchises. Have you ever written about a character like, let's say, Blade or Superman, where you had an idea in mind of, okay, let's go to this civilization, retell this, where it completely did not work at all, and you had to scrap everything and recreate this character through a whole new different tale? Ah, uh, that's a really good question, and I'm sure it has happened. I'm I'm a little stumped to think of think of uh, when that's happened. I'll keep thinking over the course of the interview. Without a doubt, I've had a couple instances where I've had I've run into blind alleys in my writing. I and in a couple instances, I've abandoned stories or scripts. I have a couple of half written scripts out there that are sort of hanging around where I just realized. I couldn't crack the story. With you creating these new revitalized legends, because a lot of people see the Nolan series as the recreation of the superhero genre that kind of died in the late 90s with its mixture of um, crime tales and, again, social commentary, do you feel that these are the new kind of tales that will be based upon do you think that your own work will be taken from so many years in the future where they'll see this and say hey this is another tale that i can kind of like be influenced by or will it be something from where you were influenced by from way back in history uh, look i have no doubt that batman superman these are perennials yeah. and i have no doubt that someone else i, I mean i i think that we're still very much in the shadow of the dark knight yeah. And will probably be in the shadow of the Dark Knight, speaking of Batman, I would say for another 10 or 20 years. But inevitably, someone's going to come around and completely reinvent the character and go in a completely different direction. And that's good. That's healthy because myths can stagnate. And they, they, the only way that they remain vital is if they keep changing with the times. Superman changed with the times. Uh, Batman's changed with the times. Um it's 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 nice to be to have your version of that be considered the definitive version for a period of time, but nothing lasts forever. With myths transcending over so many years, like thousands of years, we'll all wrap things up. Um, what do you think was the key element that made these stories translate so well for so many years and so many civilizations and in your own work as well? Because you've been acclaimed for a lot of your writing. I mean, myths are fundamentally about they're, – they're either cautionary tales um, or, or they're, they're attempts to explain the unknown, attempts to grapple with our fears. So, I mean, I think fundamentally they date back to when we were living in caves. Why does night happen? What, it, what is the moon? Why do people die? Why do we, we become sick? I mean, that's what myths are. They're, they're an attempt – to understand the unknown and attempt to, I think most myths have to do with fear primarily. Um, a few myths don't, but most 
most have to do with fear um, and trying to um, make sense of a world that seems to not make sense. Well, thank you for making sense for a lot of inspired um, screenwriters here at, in Toronto at the conference. So thank you very much for this interview. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Now, that was excellent. Great job, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. How, how did you find the interview went? That was obviously your first interview of the weekend. And I know you've interviewed other people before, but this is someone who's a giant in his field that I don't think you've ever done anything like this before. How did it go for you? Well, this was important for me because I've done music interviews before. And those were people, a lot of the musicians I've interviewed were people I've idolized before. And uh, that was lovely as well. But I studied film. You know, I've lived and breathed film for many a year now, as you can attest to as well. And being able to see somebody who you could just not only ask questions to, but almost have a full on discussion where you're almost geeking out and fully explaining these ideas you have running through your head, which... You know, you can't always share with everyone because some people don't look at films the same way. You know, some people look at The Dark Knight and they say, that was a lot of fun. That was great. But if I try to bring in, you know, the downfall of civilization, they might say, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. But to be there with the man himself who helped create this and also know that I could ask these daunting questions that he had very little problem answering, it felt really, really good. And he was very patient, very nice very approachable for sure. And, you know, you wouldn't think that the man who wrote the dark Knight or man of steel or blade would be this man. He could just walk up to and say, Hey, how did this come to be? You know, you'd expect some sort of like iron fist response, but no, he was very approachable and it went extremely well. I mean, I got great answers out of him and most of that was because he was just willing to talk. Yeah, that's great. I think it was really funny in his actual session, I, probably the part that I laughed the most at was when he said, The Dark Knight Rises is just my retelling of Rocky Three. <laughs> Essentially, and if you want to go back into mythology, I mean, Rocky alone has a, has a modern mythos to it because that's a movie so many people grow up on through their childhoods. And it even got passed on to their own children, almost like a Disney film. So, yeah, you have so many people who got that. You know, if you said something else like, um, I don't know, like what would be another example? Like, oh, yeah, this is my Alien 3. People might say, ah, I guess. <laughs> but Rocky 3, for some reason, is something everyone could identify with. It was a third film in a series that people understood, which is bizarre. So if he had to make that joke at all, that was the perfect one because that is a modern mythos right there. Yeah, I just, I just found that pretty funny where you don't even sometimes put two and two together. Um, now, outside of Goyer, were there any other sessions that you really liked? I know you didn't get a chance to see everyone, but uh, any ones that stuck out, stuck out for you? Well, one that really stuck out for me, um, which I sadly didn't get a chance to interview, but there's a happy ending to this. Um I've, I didn't watch Shit's Creek until after the session today. I actually went home and I tried it a little bit. I'll tell you what my findings were in a second. Um, but it was Eugene Levy and his son, Dan Levy. They came and, and they had a discussion with everyone. And I remember um, just how excited so many people were when I told them, oh, I might be, you know, I might be watching uh, or possibly interviewing Eugene and Dan Levy. And people were going insane because these are huge figures. I mean, Eugene Levy, obviously, with SCTV and all of his films, either from way back when his comedy gold until the 90s, which a lot of my contemporaries would, you know, have a huge passion for because of American Pie. And it's huge amount of sequels. Now, if Goyer said American Pie 3, that would have been bizarre. But um, no, there's a huge amount of respect for Eugene Levy and his son, Dan Levy, who's affected a huge generation of people through his MTV presence. Um, so the young generation, and the old generation kind of they, they didn't even really clash. They just made amends on stage. And you could see the different types of humor being expelled from both people 
it was a very enjoyable discussion. It was also very informative. And again, I never watched Shit's Creek. I went home to check it out. I ended up watching two episodes. This is why this conference is amazing because it wasn't my favorite of shows. I thought it was okay, but I got fully everything they said in their in their conference. Everything they tried to bring out, I saw fully within their show, and I had a lot of respect for it. You know, sometimes you go to a show and you don't like it and you just outright dismiss it, but sometimes hearing why these decisions were made makes you have a whole new respect for the show. And you know what? It's not that bad, actually. What was your biggest takeaway from their talk? Um, it was weird because I was expecting a lot of, I am the father, this is my son, we went back and forth and nothing happened. Ah, But my biggest takeaway um, might have actually come from the ending, which uh, at the end, they opened up for a question and answer and... I like to be on top of things, so I shot my hand up, and luckily, because I was wearing a weird woolen cap, you know, I was pointed at and announced, the man with the woolen cap can take the first question. So, um, I did this partially because my sister's a big fan of the show, and I wanted to, you know, if I had a chance to talk to them, I wanted to put pass her word on, but I said, you know what, I'm here for media, let me use this opportunity, so... I asked them a question despite not having much context of the show. So I hope I asked the right thing. I said, um, because they had this piece during their conference where they said they use an anchorman a lot, which what they mean is they have a neutral character in a comedy where everyone else is going crazy around them. But this anchor character brings everything back to earth. The Michael Bluth. Exactly. The Michael Bluth of of Arrested Development. That's exactly what I was thinking of. The example they used was Jerry Seinfeld, which is weird because he's a comedian, but he's also the most sane out of his group of friends. Um, So on the show, Eugene Levy is apparently the anchor, which is what I saw when I watched it, actually. So my question to them was, with this used formula that has worked since the dawn of the sitcom and the comedy back in the 50s, is it easy or difficult to come up with jokes that are fresh and how do you go about making jokes that aren't tread on and the answer was interesting because you have a comic genius like eugene levy flat out say i can't write a joke if my life depended on it that's honestly how we answered and the basis of their response both dan and eugene is that they create these zany characters that are lifelike, but they're also very out there. And the lines almost write themselves, not in an improvised, not in an improvisational kind of way, but in such a sense that these characters would say such things that are realistic, but they're also zany. And that's where the comedy from the show comes from. And when I checked the episodes back home, I watched the first two episodes just to try and get a good idea of what the show is all about. I saw exactly that. There weren't a lot of jokes. It was mostly the bickering back and forth and how the mother character would react in such an overly dramatic way. And this is a formula I've seen on a lot of shows that aren't even comedies, for instance. Well, technically, Six Feet Under is kind of a dark comedy, but you could see that some of the dark humor there is just because people cry way too crazily and it sounds bizarre. And... It was a very informative moment because sometimes, this is what I was going back to earlier, um, saying that sometimes we try to yearn for too far instead of realizing what works back in the box while we're trying to step outside of it. Sometimes we try to write too many jokes and not all of them are going to be good. Sometimes you have to realize that just people themselves can be funny. And it was hopefully informative for everyone else as much as it was for me because it's something we often forget especially as screenwriters we're trying to find that witty dialogue that tarantino has come up with you know but sometimes it's about the delivery as well as a slightly personal anecdote i was uh i was lucky enough as my job to kind of hang out in the green room and after uh the levy session was done they were brought up and they they had they only had one interview and so i got to sit in the corner and watch them do it and and Eugene, he just has this presence where, you know, he doesn't really have to say a lot. He doesn't really have to do a lot. And he's not that imposing of a man. He's kind of a, on the smaller side, but the the attention is on him. And he's just so funny. Even though his son spoke most of the time during the interview, I I just feel like a better person because I got to hear him speak so close to me. It was kind of cool. 
And it's weird because Eugene Levy is, after this seminar, it's almost like a Charlie Chaplin effect where you see him with the goofy voice in American Pie where, you know, he's... He's, he's very broad in that. Yeah, it's it's weird because you expect him in person to be kind of like floaty or lightheaded, but... You see him and he's actually very well spoken and he's very direct with his answers and he's fully, fully in- intellectual about everything that he's wanting to say. So you realize all the more that this man actually has full control of his craft, which it's it's incredible to watch that kind of thing. Because I was expecting the whole seminar to be him making jokes or cracking um, sarcastic comments, but it wasn't like that. Yeah, he made some jokes, but a lot of it was his personal experience pouring out and just seeing him naturally react to his son as as a candid, funny human being. It was a very surreal and, you know, like I wasn't the biggest Eugene Levy fan coming in, but I have so much more respect for him. So I can't even imagine that somebody like yourself, who's got such high regard for him i'm, I'm gonna convert you i'm uh, I, I told you i'm gonna let you borrow my um <laughs> best uh, in best, show best in show dvd and after you watch that you'll definitely be a much bigger eugene levy fan yes and that's the thing there uh, as i was saying there are different waves of eugene levy's exposure and i got i witnessed the one that was more modern maybe that wasn't for me i saw something there today i mean even when i watch Hits creek Again, it wasn't my most favorite show, but that was not a Eugene Levy I was used to. That was him being the straight man. It wasn't him being the wacky person anymore. He was the anchor. He was, as you said, the Michael Bluth. I want to see more of what this man has done. And that's the magic of the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. So, yes, I would love to watch that movie, which he got a Golden Globe nomination for, I believe, right? I can't remember, but it sounds about right. It's obviously very deserving then. (sighs) Yeah. Um, not to spend too much time on the levies as great as they were. Uh, you also got to check out uh, a session with uh, someone else that you're not really familiar with, uh, Mara Brock Akeel, who created Being Mary Jane, Girlfriends in the Game. What what exactly did you think of that when that was a show you didn't really shows you didn't really know much about? Well, that was interesting because. Look, I've heard of Shit's Creek, but I'm going to sound pretty ignorant because when I talked about this interview I had with people close to me, they had light bulbs going off the top of their head saying, oh, I know that show. It's great. I have very, very little familiarity with any of the shows that she's been associated with, but I knew that they were kind of big deals. So I said, OK, let's see what let's see what this seminar is all about. And. It was actually very inspirational. It was a huge eye-opener because Mara Brock Akil is a very humanistic person where David S. Goyer went back to mythology and Eugene Levy and Dan Levy tried to find out what worked through comedies. Mara Brock Akil just wants to shove life into her shows and i don't just mean the common contextual term life when it comes to screenwriting where it's like your script is stale put life into it i mean she wants to put the joys and the tragedies of just everyday life into her script and we saw clips of being mary jane where some of it's identifiable but some of it isn't where we saw clips of um the main character interviewing i believe it was a prostitute right yeah yeah which Hopefully nobody can identify with any of those, but what we can identify with is her immediate reaction to try and help this person because this isn't a life worth living. You know, you want people deserve to have better than that, and it's that quick, instinctive reaction that we can identify with. But when it came to the actual, um, con- uh, to the actual events that we can identify with, you know, being cheated on. Um, just talking about starting a new life with your close friends. You know, we've all had similar experiences like that. If not being fully cheated on, we've had disastrous relationships or just very chaotic moments with a supposed significant other. And while it's been done before, the way that Akil tries to put all of these ideas into her script in such a way that it feels like life and not just 
life on television. It's a very remarkable thing to have witnessed all of her thought process, especially the fact that she said, you know, stuff like she got inspiration from working at the Gap, which for people, (laughs) not only was it funny, it was a huge blessing to so many people in there who are struggling working with day jobs, you know, working in retail stores, working in restaurants, to hear something like that, where you could say, yes, not only did I learn how to write after my job, but I learned how to write, manage, and direct through my job just by piecing together everything that we that we experience through life. You know, it's it's it was just a very refreshing take on screenwriting because we're so used to writing down notes. Here you learned just to be, you know, just to do as you are, whatever is the most natural. If it works or if it fails, you did it, you know, and you did it to your own capabilities instead of trying to phone in what you're doing just so somebody else could approve of it. And it seemed like she had quite a struggle, but at the same time, quite a miraculous outcome through all of her hard efforts. I I agree. Um, I think some of the things that struck me as far as her talk goes was her current show being Mary Jane is on BET. She's had shows on BET before and things like that. Uh, She is African-American herself. So obviously that is the sort of targeted audience. But when she was talking about it being like, Hey, these are, these are issues that face African-Americans, but in reality, no, this is not an African-American issue. This is, this is an issue that everyone or at least quite a large amount of people actually go through. It kind of makes you step back and, and realize, be like, oh yeah, like they're not just being like, oh hey, this is a black issue. No, this is this is just this is a this is a human issue. This is just how us in the black community are dealing with it. Right, and it's good that you picked up on that because I did as well, and I was fortunate enough to actually interview Mara Brock Akil, and when I brought up the idea that I. I got that from her speech as much as you did, you know, her eyes widened and she looked like she was very pleased that she got her point across. You know, she did talk about um, black culture in in films and television and she did talk about women's roles in films, but this is only because she's experienced them. She still wants to just create a unity within her craft where it's something that we can all understand. It's just from her perspective. And she would have been as pleased with your answers as she was with mine. And I hope everyone took that away from the seminar as well, because I think that's a very, very practical point to bring up. The fact that you do want to make it about your own experience, but when you please everybody, it's not in a way that you submiss- you make yourself submissive. It's in a way that you just want your script to be something that everyone can understand. And even though this is through cultures and events that she understands the most through her own experiences, it's still something that we always go through ourselves. And though the fact that she had to fight for a lot of this, because a lot of networks were kind of looking and saying, I don't know, you know, would people want to watch this? But then it ends up being for everyone. I think that speaks a lot to how kind of narrow minded, um, some companies can be when it comes to a script like this, because in the end it's benefiting everyone. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. In the, the, she showed three scenes from her show being Mary Jane, which stars Gabrielle union as the lead and all three scenes, the way that they were written in the setups were just, yes, it was from a female perspective, but I think a woman of any race could have played those scenes with ease. The first scene was about seeing that a guy that she hooked up was actually married, you know, and she finds out and kicks him out of the house and whatnot. That, that scene was not be- work. That scene didn't work because she was black. That scene worked because it was an honest reaction to finding out something that you've been lied to. Right. And it's not like who she was affected, um, the situation with the prostitute, you know, the only way that it was about her was because she's an honest, nice, caring person. 
It had nothing to do with her upbringing. It had nothing to do with, you know, where she lives, what she does. It's just about these inner qualities that we all possess where we want to help people. But, you know, sometimes we get scared if it's in a dangerous situation, whereas this is a very compromising situation. The clip ended with the respective prostitute's pimp basically threatening the main character because she wanted to purchase the prostitute and bring her out of harm's way. But he was causing a scene because she didn't have the, the funds for it right there and then. So it's an inner voice we've all had where we wanted to do something, but we were scared to, we were scared to help other people because of how it could compromise us where in this setting, we don't have to fear that we just have to fear for this character. And it's an interesting title. This is what I brought up in my interview, actually. It's an interesting title being Mary Jane because it's not just about the main character. It's about us living vicariously through that character. Yeah, so speaking of which, let's uh, let's check out that interview. This is Andreas Babilakis again with ContraZoom Podcast on LiveInLimbo.com. I'm here with Mara Braca keel after her fantastic speech. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. That was very kind of you to say. It was, a really, it was fun. It was, talking, it was great, great audience. Well, I feel like like your speech, your shows are based on your personal experiences, and that's why they feel so real and so humane, is because you're not trying to create anything artificial. What I was wondering while you were coming up with these, these show ideas and trying to get your experiences out there, was there any time where you felt like something was important to you, but it didn't really click with anyone else? Or like it was your own personal experience and not something that could be shared? Well... I know I've had many moments where you feel like, especially in the writers, you know, you know, you're, they're typically your first audience. And I remember on Girlfriends, I'll never forget it. I wanted to do a four-episode arc in a comedy about uh, HIV and AIDS, and everybody was like, "What?" <laughs> Just like I was like, "No, we got to do it. We can do it." And there was a time when you realize I did not have. I had like I think I had like ten writers. So it's like you against the room right. and then it was very my outward face was we're doing it I'm confident and it's gonna work my inside voice was like oh shit have I you know have I messed this up am I wrong am I wrong but my gut kept telling me to go and as they were breaking the stories and I would come in and check to see where we were in the story they were horrible I mean and so I realized in that particular case sometimes when you want to one you might be out there alone but that's what that's what a, a visionary person is that's what a showrunner is that's what a leader is sometimes you are alone and you have to figure out how to rally them all and sometimes in that particular case it meant that um, I couldn't leave the room at all I had to just sort of roll my sleeves up and we're going to break this one by one I had to show them what I wanted and event until they eventually caught on and to be honest I'm not sure anybody I don't not sure everybody did and right. it wasn't until it was received well that people started to oh maybe she's right so the next time you go out there and you do something like that um i'm inwardly you're never you're always nervous and a little scared but i'm getting more comfortable and okay with being being out there sometimes by yourself um uh and i think i can also do that because again i have i do have some voices around me some people around me that i can trust and like Salim, will, if he's completely off, if I if he thinks I'm completely wrong, he'll say something. But like even recently, there was a um, I wanted to express something in being Mary Jane, where I wanted to do like in Fight Club, where it's not a ghost; you're, you're talking to your subconscious. Um, but a lot of people like they kept referring it to as a ghost, and I was very, I was like, no, it's not a ghost; it's not a ghost. And so trying to help articulate some people got it and some people were just adamant that no it's kind of a ghost and I'm like no it's not and so in that particular case um, I decided you know what I'll save that for my next project right. and so they're not ready for it and so that's how sometimes I can discern it not that I gave up on it it's just that you know what I don't know if I can pull everybody together and make this work because even inside of me, I'm worried about if it's going to work. And I need everybody on board. And not to have everybody on board, it wasn't worth it for me to, to, to go forward. 
unlike, say, the time I wanted to do the HIV and AIDS thing on Girlfriend. You also talked about being a female writer, and especially when you were working earlier with Kelsey Grammer, how, like, how you felt working with everybody in the room and whatnot. You've worked for what seems like many, many, many seasons now on many different shows. How has the role of women in television writing or screenwriting of any sort changed, and has it changed for the better? Well, it's interesting. It's very funny because I've been blessed enough to work a lot, and I have I have been, um, I've always been in rooms, like my mentors had diverse rooms of, of, of men and women of different races. I mean, so there was always diversity of all kinds around me. So I am, and then that's what I do in my rooms. So I don't really know. I hear the stories and I read the articles. Um, I get the reports and the reports don't tell us that much has changed. Um, although I am meeting more women, um, you know, we're moving up together. I guess what I'm trying to say is in my life, in my bubble, women have always been a part of the conversation at a high level. Um, so I don't know any different. Uh, I am aware that there are challenges um, for uh, women's voices, but there's some victories out there. And I just keep you sort of fortifying those um, uh, women needing to... But, women need to circle around each other and sort of um, and empower each other just from a pat on the back. You don't have to you know, do the heavy lifting, but just to say, hey, I got you, I see you. And just to support. Yeah, just to support. And I think that's, um, we're finding more of that. And um, the more successful we are, it will, when you're in power, you're going to bring more women. More likely, you're going to have women in those rooms and they will learn and there'll be more people like you to sort of feed the industry. Hopefully. Hopefully, exactly. Um, It's a very interesting title, Being Mary Jane, this new show you're working on, because it's got a lot of implications to it. Like, who exactly is Being Mary Jane? Is it you? Is it the audience living vicariously through your writing? Who exactly is Being Mary Jane here? Well, one of the the things I think what I'm trying to say in the piece altogether is we need to get to a place of being. I think a lot of times... We're wearing a lot of masks and we're trying to figure out a lot of dynamics and isn't being enough? Isn't me being who I am enough? Um, so how, but in getting there, yes, I will use a lot of my life. I will use, um, I, sociology was a course I loved in school. So I find myself thinking I'm a sociologist now. So I try to sort of pay attention to what's going on around me and this is what it's like. Um, then how do we sort of, um, learn from it, accept it, and maybe be better versions of, of uh, I don't say better, but that's the wrong way to say it. How do we, how do we get to the truth and be that's okay, that's enough, you know what I'm saying, being. Exactly. It's, it's supposed to always sort of, and that being celebrated versus the achieving. Right. So with a lot of these answers, your focus with your TV shows is mostly, what it's like to just live and not just have these people who like to do these extraordinary feats. You basically see life as just an extraordinary feat where we have just so many yes. people and so many classes just being unified. And with that in mind, how difficult was it to get these ideas arranged first when you're working in a medium where a lot of things are classified, like you have the dumb jock, you have the nerdy scientist. How difficult was it to get these ideas across? It was very... It wasn't difficult, which is really, um, I got to a place in my career where when I was successful in, in one area, I was allowed, it's funny you're talking about this, I was allowed to be. It was my first time, Loretta Jones was um, head of scripted, we have a deal, we're sitting, you know, business woman sitting with artists saying, what do you want to do? And actually, I pitched a whole bunch of things. And Sling goes, what about that project? And I was like, no, no, because I didn't want anybody to mess it up. I, did, I, was, I was comfortable enough to sort of like, it was just this great idea that would never get made. Right. I was okay with that because I didn't want to mess it up. And the more I told her, talked about it, she goes, well, that's what I want. I go, well, let's be clear. I don't want to do it unless we can do it right. I don't want to do it. And she goes, well, that's what I want. And so I was given a lot of creative freedom. I have a lot of creative, creative freedom. And, um, and so 
I was able to be because I was trusted and I was respected in that moment. And I was able to, and I was able to create from that place and not from don't fuck it up. Right. <laughs> and so I was able just to be who I was. And that's the pilot that came out of me. Um, and I was nurtured in that, you know. Um, and so it was a great way to start. And as you sort of kind of like a baby, as you grow up, you're going to get a little bit more difficulties, like meaning, how do you keep telling the story on a budget? <laughs> That's challenging. Right. But at least I got to start off and knowing who, knowing what this project is. So you can help figure out how to get around those obstacles um, to keep telling the story. Right. On this one final question, you were just talking about the budget, which was an interesting segue, actually, for what I wanted to ask next. Um, because you tell such real stories and such personal experiences, you don't want to miss a single moment. And you were talking about beats in your speech where everything just like a natural pause, where everything has a rhythm and a coasting yes. through. It's not too fast. It's not too slow and lethargic. How difficult is it with a time constraint filled medium where you're stuck to like 22 minutes or you're stuck to like 45 or the full hour if you're on HBO? How difficult is it to make a breathing episode? Never mind like the 300 plus oh, you've made. What a great question. And it's very, it's very difficult, but it's also part of the challenge. I have to say that's a part of why I get to do what I do. You know what I'm saying? That's why I'm there, meaning. Um, it's kind of, I don't know if you like sports, but you know, it's, oh, yeah. but you know, that's why certainly, um, before the Lakers, <laughs> <laughs> the lovely season, yeah, 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 lovely season. <laughs> that's why you want Kobe to have the ball. So you want Jordan to have the ball. Exactly. I, that's why I, I like having the ball. Um, I like having the ball. I want to take that shot. I want to try to figure out how do I do this in those, in those, in those, um, you can say limits or boundaries. Um, and sometimes they're frustrating as hell, yeah. but that's typically where creativity is. And I think, um, uh, when you are sort of up against the wall, so to speak, and it's hard to do this, I can't, you know, where's the space and the breath in this episode? Um, then you've got to go use your creativity and you take the ball and you figure it out and you bring all those people around you to help you figure it out. I remember there was one episode and it created something really nice, um, it was in first season, and it was it was so much of this thing that I wanted, and Salim been saying this, and you'll see it. And it's we just we just we cut out all the mundane, and we just put all the good stuff together. And there was one sequence in a fight, we just jumped around the fight, right. and it just worked. And we just it was nonlinear editing, and it just and and we didn't carry it through the whole episode. We did it in that one scene and we just decided we're just going to do it in that one scene because we had too much information we wanted to get out that I didn't want it to stay on the editing room floor um and that I needed to chop that scene so I can create space in this other scene. Um that was so funny you should say this because in the um finale that's going to come up this Tuesday. I forgot to plug my show. Um in the finale <laughs> you <can't through> us. <laughs> there was a there was this People kept saying, well, Mara, you could cut this whole sequence. And she breaks up with the guy and she comes home and, and she turns on the light. And people kept saying, you can cut it. And it was the easiest thing to cut. My, I could have been out of the, the editing room days ago. Right. I knew it needed to stay. I knew it needed to stay. So the going away, coming back, driving home, driving back down the hill, up the hill, thinking about what else can I take out of this episode, we, I figured it out. You know what I'm saying? We yeah. figure we figured it out, and um, that scene is in there. And I was right; I was absolutely right. And so, and I don't even remember what I cut out, but I knew that that has to stay. And so that um, sometimes you just roll up your sleeves and you do the work. Um, anyway, so it's it's very important to keep that space and breath because I think that's what actually draws um, my viewer in. Is 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 the pauses or in the, I guess as Glenn said, in the beats. Right. Well, it's this perseverance, this creativity, and this sense of realism that have inspired a lot of us here at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference today. So thank you very much for talking oh, to me again. Thank you. You've been lovely. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Nice it's to meet you. Absolute privilege. Nice to meet you as well. Well, that was two very excellent interviews that you managed to, to score. And I, I think you did a great job with them. And we've got some fantastic subjects that were talked about thank you thank you and i think the 
the majority of why these two interviews were so full of quality is because of the answers themselves. I mean, you could work on questions as hard as you can, but if you don't have willing subjects, they're not going to go anywhere with the answers. But both David Escoye and Mara Brock-Akil were very gracious and very well-spoken. So that that didn't just help me. I hope it helps listeners with whatever pressing issues they have with both studying film and writing films. So, no, they were both very, very great to interview, and I feel very privileged. Well, I'm glad that you managed to get those. Uh, Did you have any other highlights or things that you wanted to mention about the conference itself before we wrap up? Um, Just as a whole, everything was interesting, as it was last year as well, you know. Um, you just have so many creative minds, not just on stage, but in the audience as well. You know, like last year I talked to some people. This year I talked to one or two people. You know, it's all of these people who, no matter what age they are, where they came from, they just want to write. And this this conference, to me, is like the Toronto International Film Festival of screenwriting, where they're trying to make it an international um, events where people from all over the world will come. And they said that a lot of people from the United States came, I believe. Yeah, it sounded like uh, there's quite a few people. I don't think, I think the majority of the the attendees were still local based and Canadian based, but there, there were a number of Americans that were there. Well, I hope this really picks up off the ground because I think it is a great event. I think it's one where you will definitely get your your money's worth out of it because when i signed up for the media um the media accreditation and people were just interested asking oh how much are tickets going for i let them know and people thought it was very pricey and they said geez why is it so much to me it's a no-brainer to me you're getting these absolutely essential discussions through these bright minds you don't have to go just for whatever presenter is there. You will get something substantial out of everyone. You have the access to talk to all these other screenwriters who are in the same boat as you or even further or even further behind. And you can either help them or they can help you. And either way, you're getting contacts. Afterwards, you have a social event where you're having drinks and relaxing and kicking it with these famous, famous even sometimes legendary writers and you're getting so much feedback, so much input. It's a time where you don't have to be scared about these possibly silly ideas you have. You could openly say, Hey, I have this script about this dinosaur who has an alcohol problem. And you know what? Sometimes people will look at you and say that is bizarre. But in this context, people will actually listen to you and say, okay, how did he get this problem? And from there on in, you could fine-tune even an idea as far-fetched as that. You know, It's a place you don't feel embarrassed. It's a place you feel stronger about what you're doing because you have this strength delivered to you from people who have either made it or are trying to make it. It's an absolute, absolute essential event for anybody who's wanting to become a screenwriter. Yeah, that, that said, I, all those great things that you said, I would only recommend it to people that... Uh, that do want to become writers or, or not even writers, but someone who is trying to break into the film and television world. It's a good perspective eye opener. As far as even just being a hardcore movie fan, this isn't really your type of conference. If you're paying to go, um, it, it is definitely more geared towards the artists themselves. That's a valid point because you know, you might see some names that say, oh, this is the person that helped write the Dark Knight series. I want to go watch this. But, you know, you're not going to get answers like, oh, Christian Bale was difficult to work with or he was a blessing to work with. You're not going to get stuff like that. You're getting strictly screenwriting experience. That's all you're getting. You know, if you see Eugene Levy and you want to ask him about American Pie, it's not really for that. It's for him becoming a screenwriter for this new show and how it works with his son who's also screenwriting, right? It's if you're into screenwriting, it is an absolute essential event. If you're not, I don't know. That's all you're going to get from it though, which it's kind of like, I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like going to a metal concert and expecting indie, you know, it's, (laughs) it's still music, but it's a very different 
different avenue. And, you know, look at something like Thurston Moore, who dives into both genres. If you saw Thurston Moore playing in his former band Twilight, and you're expecting, you know, something from a solo career or Sonic Youth to be there, and he's not going to play it for you because he's busy playing black metal, you know, just because he formerly participated in such genres. And this is kind of the same thing. Not really, but it's, I'm trying to make it the same thing. Um, if you're a screenwriter, this is a gold mine. If not, it might open your mind, but this is more for screenwriters. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, that, that all said, I think it's a great conference. I'm going to keep volunteering there as long as they keep having me. Hopefully you can attend again next year as well on a media basis and, and Adriana as well, who you're going to be doing a, a review with. I'm sure by the time this comes out, the review will be long posted. Yes. I want to thank Adriana Floridia, who has been with us with our capsule podcast before she's going to start writing for us as well. And she helped us cover this event as well. So thank you to Adriana Floridia. And I also want to give a thank you to Julie Strader, who helped me from here and there and everywhere with this, with this conference as a whole and just everybody involved actually helped make this both as a media representative and as an audience member, an absolute breeze. Yeah, I, I also want to extend my thanks to the whole TSC team, Glenn Coburn, who runs Meridian Artists, and uh, all, all the people there, the millions of volunteers that they had there helping everyone, like, is a very expertly run event. They they have that down to a science, a well-oiled machine, and I know it makes everyone happy because I've talked to other attendees, and everyone is always impressed with the whole atmosphere and the way it's set up. So uh, kudos to them. Absolutely. And it's funny because you think so many more events like these would be properly run the older you get. And not a lot of them are. This is one of the few events which two years in a row has gone pretty much seamlessly. It's a great transitional event where you have one speaker finish you go to another one, you know, some speeches go for overtime, but it's not as if it's redundant, you know, it's not as if it's unnecessary. Um, but apart from that, everything's just near effortless. I mean, it, it feels like an absolute pleasure to be there. Nothing is confusing or anxiety inducing. It's an absolutely pleasant experience. And the cool thing is normally actors and to a lesser extent directors are the rock stars in the film industry, but this sort of gives the writers and the creators their due and, and they're the rock stars for the weekend. Yeah, they're the bass players. They're finally getting the recognition they so deserve. I say this as a bass player. <laughs> so yeah, if you're a writer, a wannabe writer or someone in that field you should definitely check it out for everyone at live and limbo and contrazoom thank you very much for listening and we hope you enjoyed our talk and especially andreas's interviews yes i hope you enjoy those as well you could find out more about me and my shenanigans at andreas babs where you're writing about mythology right Oh, I have to. I'm Greek. Excellent. And I'm here writing about the human condition at DGAPA. And you could find us with this official podcast at ContraZoom Podcast, where we will talk about everything film. Yes, we promise to be active on that account. It's still new, so we really appreciate it. If you give us a follow, we'll follow you back. Send us any of your feedback or messages. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.